Turn and join me in the book of Exodus, that second book of the Bible. As we continue our study, this exposition, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 10. You can follow along there in your scriptures. But I want to start with this question. What would you do? This actually was a recurring ABC program, and the premise of the program is that they would hide a camera and then set up some really awkward or difficult uh, public situation, and by the hidden camera, tape people and see how they respond to it. And then they would interview the people about how they responded. And a number of people, of course, shamed that they didn't respond in the right way. They didn't come to the, the aid of the person who was having their bike stolen or whatever. And they have to then try and justify, well, I don't know, I didn't really know the person, so and so forth. And then they also get to interview the people that succeeded. They intervened. They, they stopped the, th- the theft or whatever. And then so often, and in our humanity, it sounds like self-righteousness. Well, I just knew the right thing to do. And of course, I would do that because I'm pretty great. And so glad you had this TV show to catch me doing all the great stuff that nobody really knows about. But these are questions then that they pose at the end of the show. And it's to the viewer, well, what would you do? And of course, again, in my self-righteousness, I think, well, of course, I would do the right thing. I'd stop the theft and so on and so forth. But in my heart of hearts, sometimes I wonder, would I really do the right thing? Well, let's look into this hidden camera that recorded a most difficult time and see how this sister in the faith responded. Here's her testimony. She says, I carried the smaller radio down to the big room and dressman department store where the radio collector or collection was being made. This army clerk looked at me across the counter. Is this the only radio you own? Yes, she said. He consulted a list in front of him. Ten Boom, Casper, Ten Boom, Elizabeth, they're at the same address. Do either of them have a radio at home? She says, I had known from childhood childhood, that the earth opened and the heavens rained fire upon liars, but I met his gaze, no. She says, only as I walked out of the building did I begin to tremble. Not because, she confesses, for the first time in my life had I told a conscious lie, but she says, but because it had been so dreadfully easy, end quote. That's Corey Tin Boom from The Hiding Place. If you're not familiar with her story, she and her family hid Jews during the German occupation of Holland during World War II, of course. And it's a compelling story for all kinds of reasons. But this faithful, Christ-loving, Scripture-saturated family were faced with so many difficult and horrible moral choices about what to do in a horrible situation like this. In this case, what would you do? Would you lie about the radio? I mean, this is a lie about a radio. And yet, her other radio that was hidden back at home, that of course she lied about, that was going to prove so pivotal for getting to stay abreast on what was really happening, to cut through all of the Nazi propaganda, to really know what's going on in the world. But to lie about a radio. Later, she would have to lie about ration cards, lie about people's names, their nationalities, where they were from, what she was up to in her activities. But what did she lie for? Well, it was all connected, but it was directly to save the lives of many, many Jews who would otherwise be rounded up and exterminated, murdered, and executed. So, 
again, what would you do? Well, this much is clear. In the Christian life, we must defy evil. And there's evil out there in the world. We must stand against it as representatives of Christ. And we do so by preaching the gospel. There's also an evil right in your heart that you must defy. You must put it to death, not entertain it. We are called to Christ, and that means we are called to a godly resistance. Being a Christian is not to be simply kind. It's not to be merely easygoing. It is not to ruffle the feathers merely to not do this. The Christian life is called to stand with God. And at times, faith in this God and in His promises, it must look like defiance. Why? You cannot make terms, you cannot make peace with evil. This is our call. So understand, brothers and sisters, sometimes faithfulness to God must look like defiance. It looks like it in two ways we see unfold in this text. We must defy all attempts to oppose God's Word, to oppose His plans, to oppose His truths that He has laid out in His Word. That's where it starts on the outside, but also on the inside. We need to defy hopelessness, even in our own heart, and we do so by remembering His Word. The Christian life at times, faithfulness will look like defiance. And let's see this unfold in two ways by the examples here in this text. And first, it is this, we must defy evil, and what that looks like, that means faithfully obeying God. Faithfully obeying God, verses 15 to 21. Because see, the world is at war with God. It's war. There's no peace that can be made between them. And faithfulness for us means, full of faith in His Word, we must stand with Him, obey Him, whatever the cost may be. And that means we're going to go against the flow of this world, you see. Now, I suppose we all know this. This is what the commitment to Christ means. Yes, you, you are... As we picture our faith externally, we go through the waters of baptism, right? We die to ourselves. We're going to live for Christ. We know these truths. We're going to have to stand against the world. But then, as the temperature of resistance all around us against God gets turned up, this is where we really begin to feel it. And that's what we find now as we turn to our study of Exodus. Now, we considered last time how even in a foreign land, God has blessed His people just as He promised. He was multiplying them and making them into a great nation. This is what He had promised to do. They were blessed to then be a blessing to the world. You're seeing these truths play out. And yet, this blessing that God had upon His people was heightening the paranoia of this very insecure king in Egypt, Pharaoh. He saw the increasing number of Jews as an increasing threat, a danger to him. So what did he do? We saw last time, first he brutally enslaves them. And yet it seemed like every crack of the whip just made more and more Jews come about. Again, showing God's favor and how they were multiplying. So Pharaoh comes up with a new strategy, population control by way of infanticide. Verse 15, chapter 1. Too cowardly, perhaps, to do this himself. And he wants to do so secretly. He calls the Hebrew midwives, the ladies positioned to help children and to help these mothers, he calls them to kill them. Then the king of Egypt 
said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Just stop there for a moment. These women are the heroes of the story. They are immortalized in Holy Scripture forever. What a contrast. Remember last week as we started to study and begin and it said a new Pharaoh came to power and we were wondering, well, who is that Pharaoh? When we tried to piece together some things of history, it was hard to figure out because Moses doesn't give us Pharaoh's name, the great Pharaoh. He's nameless here. He's anonymous. He's a shadowy figure that's going to fade away like all of God's enemies, but not these women. No, they were worth remembering in God's estimation. Two women from the lower tiers of society, people that looked over them, thought they weren't favored or blessed by God, namely because they didn't have families, and yet they stand tall for an eternity for their great faith, and they will be remembered far longer than the pyramids and all of those great tombs will exist in Egypt. Which poses to us the question, what God values and prizes may not be what everyone else thinks is so significant. Now, why are these ladies worth remembering? But for how they responded to the hellish command from Pharaoh. Look now to verse 16. Here's his command. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Here's his strategy. Kill the baby boys. Get rid of them. Put them to death. Don't help the mothers and their children, but break their hearts. Suffocate, pierce, do whatever you got to do. Kill these baby boys in Israel. And of course, now these women, they are in an impossible situation, aren't they? They can either kill these helpless, innocent in that way, baby boys, or they're probably going to be killed by Pharaoh themselves if they would dare flaunt or defy his command. What are they supposed to do? I mean, what are you supposed to do? What would you do? Do you keep your job? Do you keep your position? Do you keep your salary, your provision, your security? Or do you risk your life to save a few babies and probably die in the process? I mean, think about it. There there have been so many babies around. Are we really going to miss a few? Is it really going to be so bad? Well, again... What would you do? Well, what did they do? Whom did they obey? Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They defied Herod's command. They wouldn't do it. And it's an active thing. In this sense, it says, the text says, they let the male children live. That means they're involved in this process despite what they're going to tell Pharaoh in a few moments. They're being active about this, and they're not going to follow through on that command. They're going to defy him. And why? Because they feared God. That's why. They feared and honored God more than they feared Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh, he's probably the most powerful ruler in the world at this time. You know, they initially probably did not receive the command directly from Pharaoh, but some of Pharaoh's servants told these midwives what to do. And now they're being called before the great king in his throne room. How would you respond? Pharaoh, certainly, whether he's the greatest king in the world at that time, he had full authority over them. And we know his character. This is not a nice guy. 
If he can make such a heartless decree like he did to kill all the baby boys, surely he would have little hesitation to dispatch just two lowly Jewish midwives. But they feared God. They trusted him anyway. God loomed far larger in their mind and in their thinking and in their life than Pharaoh did or whatever consequences he threatened upon them. They feared God more, so they obeyed God. Ed Welch captures this idea so well, even by his book's very title, When People Are Big and God is Small. And of course, there really is no comparison between God and people. God is much bigger. (laughs) He's far more significant. He's the most powerful. He's the most worthy of respect. And yet, in our unbelief, we start to lose sight of the significance of God, and people loom much larger in our life. In that way, people are like quarters that are very small, not worth too much, especially these days. And you can take a quarter, and you can put it up in the sky, and you can eclipse the sun. And you might start to think, wow, that sun's pretty small, and this quarter's pretty big and really significant. Well, people become like that. From our unbelieving vantage point, they seem far more significant than the fiery orb in the sky. But it's because of our perspective is off, isn't it? People start to look, even though they're very small, they start to look really big in our lives. Their esteem, their affirmation, their authority, well, then God starts to very much shrink and we lose sight of His importance. Our view on reality has become quite distorted, hasn't it? And when that happens, Welch draws out in his book, we start to fall into a whole host of social and personal problems. We give into peer pressure, doing things we know we shouldn't do, but we do it because everybody else was doing it, right? Or we overcommit because we don't want to disappoint anyone. Or we become enslaved to affirmation and self-esteem, so desperate for those likes and strokes on social media. We constantly second-guess our decisions because we wonder that others will look down on us for the choices we've made. We become easily embarrassed. We become easily angered. We become easily discouraged. We feel successful or we look like failures because we're constantly comparing ourselves and maybe our families to everyone else. What's happened there? We've enslaved ourselves to others at that point, haven't we? To their opinions. Why? Because we fear them. We fear their estimation of us. We fear what they can do or might not do for us any longer. And so they loom far larger in our mind than God ever does and what He's called us to do and what He is for us. To put biblical terminology to all this, that's when we fear people or men more than God. Call it man-fearing or people-pleasing or peer pressure or codependency or biblically, sin is what this is. But it was the fear of God that these women had, a fear to disobey God, They feared to oppose God and His plan to to bless and multiply the people of Israel. They feared to destroy these little divine image bearers. And it was a healthy of right fear of God that then caused them to walk in obedience. Even when it might cost them all the world, maybe even their very lives. God and His promises loomed far bigger as they really are 
in their mind and heart. And so we must turn right to our own heart and say, well, how about yours? What would you do? Whom do you fear? And to know that answer, ask yourself the question, who are you obeying? Do you obey God or men when push comes to shove? That'll show you the one that you fear. Because understand the world, people like Pharaoh, they want to loom large in your life. They want to take God's spot. They want to be the Lord that you serve. So they use fear or whatever they do to subject you to them. Look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Now, to put things together, it probably took Pharaoh a little while to figure this out, that the midwives had defied his order. You know, boy or, boy or girl, babies look like babies when they're all wrapped up, right? They got to get old enough to, like, toddle along and so forth. It was probably two years from when he gave this command to when he starts realizing, hey, what are all these Jewish toddler boys doing around the place? Give me those midwives now, Right? And I'm sure he could not stand the thought that these little women would ignore his order, the order of mighty Pharaoh. They got to answer for this, and so they get called into his office, so to speak. Why'd you let the children live, and why'd you defy my command? What would you do? What would you say? Here's what they said, verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. At least that's their story. This is their excuse for disobeying Pharaoh. And so they're trying to posture it. They didn't really disobey. They just never had the opportunity to execute on the order. Is that what happened? I don't think so. I think verse 17 makes it kind of clear. They let the boys live. They had control over this. In some measure, they are looking to deceive Pharaoh, intentionally so. Why? What would be the reasons? On the face of it, just on the first, spare their own life. Second, if they spare their life, maybe they can keep their position and keep Pharaoh's hands away from these blessed baby boys. But third, it's interesting, even in the way they speak to Pharaoh, they feed his fears and paranoia. Do you see that? The answer he gives, they give, that suggests the liveliness, the strength of these Hebrew women. The babies are just, they come almost instantly. You don't understand, Pharaoh. There's no epidurals needed. There's no help from the midwives. These Hebrew women are like Shiras, just popping out kiddos back and forth. And then they go back to homeschooling the kids like nothing happened. You laugh. Yeah, I've seen it right here. The point is, even in their response, they're giving their own Hebrew propaganda. Feeding Pharaoh's fears that these are a blessed people. And they might rise up against me. This is why I think Pharaoh, in the end, leaves them alone. Well, how does God deal with these women? First, we read this in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So first of all, God rewards their obedience, which was really a defiance and disobedience to Pharaoh. 
that they obeyed God instead, preserving life instead of killing it. And so for this, God deals well with the midwives. We'll see more of the details of that. But second, just from verse 20, we see that their obedience resulted in further blessing of God's people. Again, those words, the people multiplied and grew very strong. This revisits that language we saw from Genesis about when God's blessing His people, they're being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land. God's blessing centering on this one people to then spread to all the earth, but it starts here with the Jews. God blessed them for what they did. Okay, Rick, are you saying then God blessed them for lying or at least giving an untruth, if we can distinguish between those? Well, not exactly. Uh, Moses here tells us expressly why God blessed these women. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. See, he blessed them with families of their own because they feared God, because they thought of God as more significant than all that Pharaoh is or could threaten, even over their very lives. They feared God more than any man, and for that, God blessed them for it. Okay, yes, but are you then saying it was the fear of God that caused them to lie? Well, it doesn't precisely say that. God blessed them, yes, and they deceived Pharaoh. God doesn't say in this text that He blessed them for deceiving Him. But note this, and on the other side of it, neither does the text say anything or throw any shade in a negative way towards these women for their deception. The the text is in no way critical of them. That's also important. Actually, everywhere we get in here, let alone in Scripture, they are heroes of the faith for their trust in God. Okay, and you might come back. What if they trusted God so much and then He's in control of everything? Shouldn't they just have told the truth and then let God take care of the rest? Maybe, but maybe not. How should we think about this? What's the right thing to do in a situation like this? Dr. R.C. Sproul was posed this question, and he wisely replied. The very thing, he was asked about the midwives and so forth. He said this, The Christian is always to give the truth and to speak the truth to whom the truth is due. Okay. The question now becomes, is there such a case for the so-called just or justified lie? He responds, I would say so. And the situations falling most clearly into that category would involve war, murder, or criminal activities. And then I want to ask, but Dr. Sproul, what about birthdays, engagements, and Christmas? He didn't answer that. But in the case of war, Dr. Sproul went on to explain, I don't think a person is required to tell the enemy where his group is concealed. Or for murderers looking for your kids, that you must entrust of God. Just disclose where they are. No, you're called to protect them, he says. You must fear God, which means you must stand against evil. You must stand against the ones trying to subvert and destroy God's people. God's purpose is to bless. You must fear God over men and all their evil plots. But back to this question about deception or untruths or falsehoods, let alone lying. Again, what should you do? Well, what motivates you? one way or the other, to speak a truth or a falsehood? Is it fear and trust in God? Is that why you're tempted to give a falsehood? Because it's a very extreme situation? 
Or is this about self-preservation? Is this about making yourself look better? Is this about personal advancement? Can you dare lie then, say like these midwives did, or give an untruth, and actually be trusting God? As I take in the whole of Scripture, I think so, actually. I think even the way this text unfolds, God extols these women in this very extreme circumstance. And I think that is, this is what, beginning where we did with Corey Tim Boom, what she discovered as she deceived and lied to countless authorities who were looking to round up and exterminate the Jews in Holland. Did the Lord bless her efforts? Yes, in that many Jews were saved. But interestingly, on the other side of this, one of Corey's sisters who joined the resistance, even hid Jews in her home, she, in her sincere trust to God, had an impossible time trying to lie. And in the process, once she was confronted, she had a Jew in her home who didn't even look very Jewish, looked very blonde and Aryan. And she had all the fake papers hiding out at Nolly's house. And yet, when the sister was asked so directly by the guard, is this woman a Jew? Nolly just reflexively said, yes, betraying her to the Nazis compromising the safety of this Jew in her home. Even for this, Nolly herself was incarcerated and taken away. But you know what? God in His mercy spared that woman who was betrayed by Nolly and the others also who were betrayed. Each one who was captured because Nolly spoke the truth made it out of German hands into safety. And this is what Nolly herself so desperately prayed for once she had betrayed them. And I would hold up both of those cases and say God was merciful. And in both cases, I, say, I think each woman responded in sincere faith at great risk to their own lives because they feared and trusted God more than men, more than Nazis, more than imprisonment, and more than concentration camps, which Nolly ended up, or excuse me, that Corey ended up going to. They were determined to stand with God and defy evil and save lives any way they could, and God honored that. So to conclude then, would it ever be okay as a Christian to deceive? Yes, at times, depending on who's asking on the situation, who wants to know. Perhaps before God, whoever is asking has no right to know the truth. They forfeited it by their rebellion to his plans and purposes, seeking to do evil. But of course, in any situation we're in, it's very tricky to try and figure out when that would be, especially given the fallenness of our own heart and our own deceitfulness. In light of all of that, I think one pastor concluded the discussion in just the right way. He said this through a discussion about this, is it ever okay as a Christian to lie? He said, he said it was in very extreme circumstances, and he noted this. However, it must be noted that such instances are extremely rare. It is highly likely that the vast majority of people in human history have never faced a situation in which lying was the right thing to do. And I think he's probably right. We should be truth-tellers, because our God is, and we fear Him and we trust Him. But whatever the circumstances, 
We just fear and trust him above all. That means we must defy evil and even the evil right within our heart. It's trying to silence his word and his truth. So trust God, even with the truth. Come out to the light. Expose your own lies. Search him for mercy. And in full faith, obey him, standing with him, even if it's costing you your very life. Defy evil. Faithfully obey God. Also, we must, now looking right inside, defy hopelessness. And that means we will then faithfully do what we can. That is, we are tempted in our heart toward hopelessness as things start going horribly wrong in this world. We don't see how God can do anything good out of this. God, what are you doing? And yet, We hope in this God, we trust in Him, we know He'll be faithful to His Word, we just don't know when. And so in the meantime, we're called to just faithfully do what we can. That's the example we see here. In other words, this is a call for optimistic faith. Trust in a good and faithful God that will come through, we just don't know when. And instead of being hopeless and giving up, He has called us to just be faithful in the situation we're in. Again, this example comes to us as Pharaoh amps up his persecution of these Jewish baby boys. And we find it there at the end of chapter 1 in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. In effect, this is just a reprise of what he told the midwives, but now it's to the He's mobilized the whole Egyptian nation against the Jews. Cast them in the Nile. And so now, Jewish young couples, parents, they have a dilemma, don't they? A hopeless peril is before them. How are you supposed to respond to an edict like that from one who has such power? Maybe you're not supposed to get married. Maybe that's what they're supposed to think. Or maybe we should stop having kids. But again, how does that factor into what God has promised to do and to bless this people, to be fruitful and multiply? That doesn't fit with God's promises, particularly for these Jewish people in the Old Covenant that we'll see. Or maybe they just think things like, oh, they're going to kill them anyways. Or who would want to bring up a child in a situation like this, like slavery? But again, Is that in line with what God has promised this people for this time? Nevertheless, that's what Pharaoh wants them to think. He wants them to be discouraged. He wants them to be hopeless. But as we turn to chapter 2 now, we see the response of one faith-filled couple expressing their faith and daily faithfulness in the purposes of God. Look at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And God showed special favor to their union, granting a child, verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, honestly, I don't think the ESV gets it too well here with fine child. I don't think that captures the sense, at least how we normally talk. How's your son? You know, your newborn son? Maybe it's your first one. Ah, he's fine. Cries a lot, actually. You know, it's kind of a big no-no nowadays with the whole Pharaoh's going to kill your baby stuff. It's kind of annoying. No, it's not fine. Other translations, I think, get it right. It's talking about he's beautiful or he's healthy. The point is clear. His parents adore him, and they will not let any harm come to him. They love him. 
Forget Pharaoh's decree. This boy is staying with us no matter what come, what may. And that seemed doable for three months. And then babies don't sleep as much during the day. And not much at night either, it seems. They squawk a bit more. They're crawling and moving around perhaps shortly after this. Doing everything they can to give you and themselves away. This is a problem. What's a pair to do? Well, this couple was resigned to the fact they have to put him out of the house, or otherwise he's going to get caught and killed himself, or maybe us too. Now, to that, this decision to no longer hide him, was this a weakness in their faith? Shouldn't they just trust God, defy, and keep him in their home? Maybe it was a weakness in their faith, in some measure. As you look at the hall of faith, we call it, in Hebrews chapter 11, what do we see if every person in there, they're a sinner, they're fallen. Despite being extolled for their great faith, they all have their own doubts and issues, like all of us do. Because really, the great hall of faith is a testimony to a faithful God, isn't it? Not to great people. Nevertheless, even though this might be a step in the wrong direction or a weakness in their faith, nevertheless, the book of Hebrews in the Bible extols their faith. Moses' parents here, they're, they're remembered in the great hall of faith. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, in God that is, when he was born, Moses was, he was hidden for three months by his parents. Why? Because they saw the child as beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Again, we return to the issue of fear, don't we? Who are you going to fear? Who's most significant in your life? Is it God or is it man? Well, they say, says in the text, they didn't fear the king's edict. They didn't care about his threats. They feared God. Come what may, they were not afraid. But nevertheless, they knew they could not keep him safe at home either. So what could be done? Well, this mother, she concedes, okay, we're going to put him in the Nile. But I'm not going to do that without giving him a boat and a lifeguard. This is what she does. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And even this, I submit to you, was a great act of faith. And it's seen in that word basket that's used here by Moses as he writes it. That word, let me nerd out for a second. That word basket occurs some 28 times in the whole Hebrew Bible in 25 different verses. And you see it here in verse 3 uh, with the basket. You also see it in verse 5 when Pharaoh's daughter spots the basket in the reeds. But each of the other 26 occurrences of this word all appear in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Do you remember what Genesis 6 through 9 was about? It's about when the floodwaters overtook the whole earth, killing everyone on the planet except those eight souls that were bobbing up and down above the waters and their specially built, God-designed basket. It's the same word, Noah's Ark. She put her son in the river in an ark. I suggest to you that she knew the story about God had preserved His people in the ark against danger. Those that looked to him by faith, he had saved. And so she made an ark. She covered it with pitch. She puts her son inside of the saving ark in trust of God. She did so in faith. She did what she could 
But she realized at that point, she took all precautions she could, but she had to extend and put her faith and trust in God to save. She could no longer save. God's going to have to do it. I'm putting this child in your hands, oh God. As a quick aside in parenting, as a brother reminded me between services, is that not what we all have to do as we raise our children? Do what you can, but you must entrust them to the Lord. She places her beloved son in a saving ark, recalling to mind how God delivered in the past. And then she also stations big sister as a lifeguard to watch over him. Now consider this. As you put your child there by the Nile's waters, this is a dangerous place. There were crocodiles around. Any Egyptian might find the baby, cast him away. Not to mention if this little ark capsized or the Baby just dehydrated or was exposed. But what's about to happen next seems like the worst case scenario. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Uh Uh-oh, this is a problem. Murderous Pharaoh... The daughter of that has come and found the baby. It's as if this little boy now has been fed right into the biggest crocodile in the Nile, Pharaoh himself. Surely this whole salvation plan and hope has been spoiled now. He's been spotted. He's in the hands of the enemy. Only, though, by God's good providence, this daughter thinks a bit differently than her father does. Look at verse 6. When she opened it, the ark, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And the way this is framed in the Hebrew text, it's, this is love at first sight. She's compelled just in the moment, overcome. She knows she cannot dispose of this child. She has compassion. She knows she must spare him. And as luck would have it. Big sister's right there to chime in. Verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. All to say, that little girl had just the woman in mind to go get right now, right? And can you try and imagine as she's running home to then give this story to mother? Big sister Miriam comes racing around the corner saying something. They picked up baby brother. They have baby brother. Pharaoh's daughter has him. The princess found him. They picked him up. And then I offered to find a nurse for the baby. And she said, I could. And I could pick whoever I wanted. And I've come to you, mom. Pharaoh's daughter's calling you. And not only that, she finds that the princess wished to pay for services. Look at verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, this is the mother now, take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I don't think she deliberated very long on whether she was going to agree to such terms, right? This is the best news. Now, surely it must have been heart-wrenching to give up her precious boy, but he would be safe. He would at least have a chance to escape slavery even if he must grow up in Pharaoh's house. But as we see here, he would grow up under a loving, caring eye, verse 10. 
And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. She adopts, the princess adopts Moses as her own son. She loves him, plucked from the Nile. I mean, what a surprise, right? What a, what a reversal of expectations from where we began. Instead of this boy being under the threat of Pharaoh and of the Nile, by Pharaoh's own daughter now, this little boy is rescued. He's plucked from the Nile. He's plucked from the clutches of Pharaoh, but to grow right up under Pharaoh's nose, to be nurtured even by Pharaoh by extension in his riches, to then have this one who's chosen and equipped by God to lead people out of Egypt, to destroy Pharaoh's army, to destroy the glory of Egypt. As this boy has been rescued and brought into Pharaoh's home, who's really in danger now is what I ask. Indeed, the most dangerous place to find yourself is to at be at war with God. You'll never win. To find yourself opposing God, to opposing, opposing His plans, to opposing His people. All of your great plans and schemes, they will be overturned by the Almighty God and used to support His own ends that you dreamed and never wanted to happen, despite whatever your protests are. Oh, do you think you're so smart that you can really oppose God and get away with this and win? Herod tried, Herod tried it. Remember that, King Herod, when he tried to kill baby Jesus? We saw that in Matthew. He made his scheme, oh, I'll worship Jesus, and then he was going to kill him. But then God warned the wise men. He went out another way and sheltered his son in faraway Egypt, of all places. Or take the plans of all the Jewish leaders, or Judas, or Pilate, or Satan that was empowering all of them. They supposed, oh, if we can just kill Jesus, we'll just end this whole Jesus craze. We'll be rid of him. We'll end all of this. Let's just have him killed. Except then, what happens? He dies, yes, but then he dies for our sins, paying the penalty for hell for all that trust in him. What happens? But by the very death, orchestrated in one sense by evil, was used by God to make his people righteous, to make his people blessed, to make his people forgiven, to make his people loved, because he rose from the dead paying their penalty. What a glorious God. You oppose him, he uses it all to advance his glory. His purposes cannot be stopped. Not even the grave could stop him. All the schemes and plans of our enemies and the devil, they only get used by God, gloriously used by God, even to advance His good purposes in the end. Again, which they have no idea that they're fulfilling. Why? Because this is what our God can do. This is what He does. You can't stop Him. You can't thwart His plans. He will bring them to pass. And no edict, no government shutdowns, no persecution, no tax threats, no lawsuits, no threats of anything else can stop a faithful God from keeping all of His Word. Which means, in the end, brothers and sisters, do we not have great reason for optimism in view of the purposes of God? Or I stand rebuked by the examples of this text for my Eeyore-type faith, if I can even call it that. You know Eeyore. Good morning, Eeyore. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. No, dear brother, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. That came from the Apostle Paul in prison. Why can he say that? 
He told us earlier, because to live is Christ, and to die, the worst thing they can do is gain, because I get more of Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Whatever circumstance it is, can it really stop God's good word coming true? They couldn't stop Christ. They can't stop all that he protects. They cannot stop one part of his word come to pass. I mean, what's the worst this world can give you? Afflictions? Distresses? Anxieties, persecutions, famines, nakednesses, dangers, swords. How about any of those? Are those going to stop God and his promises? Paul says, no, in Romans 8, 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why are we more than conquerors through his love? Because those things only work to make us closer to him. They cannot stop our God. Bringing his full word come to pass. That's why we can say all things work together for good, don't you see? To those who, are, who love God and are called according to His unassailable, unstoppable, unalterable, perfect purpose for us in Christ. He's faithful. Rejoice in the future. Rejoice in His promises. Don't be overcome by your circumstances. Look beyond them to the faithful God and His Word. And so in the meantime, be faithful. Do what you can by faith looking to Him. Not to your circumstances. What does that mean? Keep praying, even though you don't yet see things changing. Keep preaching. Keep gospelizing, even though people have turned down the gospel again and again. Keep gathering with God's people. If you're not even sure, well, why are we here or what goes on? Keep giving your dollars to the work of missions, even if the gospel seems to be spinning its wheels overseas. Keep encouraging. Keep exhorting. Keep discipling. Keep pointing others to God's word, to that glorious gospel word. Why? For in it, we find the most surprising, marvelous news, the greatest reversal of all time, that a holy, offended, almighty God would love and receive enemies as his sons, plucking us from the danger of judgment. And may we be faithful, extending that hope to others, telling all that we see about that gospel word and living it in faithful obedience. Let's pray for his help in that. Let's pray together.